0: Hey, Siri, play Machine Yearning. Here's Forgive and Forget, Isabella Machine Summers Remix by the Kooks. No, no, uh, Machine Yearning Podcast.
1: Hmm, I'm not finding anything for that.
0: (sighs) Not again. machine yearning from Assist. It's a podcast where we think and dream about the future of AI, the talking internet, and how we're reshaping our culture. Catherine Hume came to us via Robin Sloan, a great friend of the pod. One of the things we loved about talking with Catherine is that she gets the poetry of language. She's also really smart about how that poses some major challenges with AI. Catherine is also someone who can say, I think math is cool, and you can tell she means it. Her blog, Quam Proxime, is a must read. Catherine brings a wonderfully diverse view. She works at Integrate AI now and has done product, marketing, investment, and mentored startups. Catherine gets that nobody really knows where this thing is going, and that's okay. But also, we can gather some clues about where we're going by looking at how humans don't change. We loved our time with her, and we think you will too. Enjoy. Thank you for coming.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: how have you seen the conversation change in the last 12, 18, 24 months?
1: Ooh, great question. I mean, there's certain things that stay the same and certain things, certain things that have changed. I'm a big fan, and when I'm thinking about even the future, and I'll come back to the question about, like, what's changed, of when you think, all right, so what's going to be inevitable, as opposed to being, like, this technology is going to get to this point, which mm-hmm. are normally just a, it's a fool's errand for us to try to predict where the tech's going to go, it's better to stay, like, think, like, what is going to stay the same so, Jeff Bezos from Amazon, like he says, can I envision a world where customers are going to want to pay more as opposed to less for toilet paper? He's like, nope, that's not changing. So, therefore, if I make decisions on my tech stack that make it so that prices will stay cheap or decrease... That will be good for business. <laughs> you know, it's like that's it's like that's a that's an inevitability. It's an assumption I can work with. So I think about that with regards to like the future of AI, where it's super hard for us to predict exactly what's going to become possible and what's not. But there's a lot of aspects of human nature that are going to stay the same that we can use as like a grounding as we think through things as we go for the past and like what's changed over the past two years. What um, are the
2: specifics of that though? Of like what's going to stay the same? Of the human, you said there's some things that are going to there's, there's some things that aren't going to change.
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, maybe this is just my own sort of beliefs about humanity. I don't think we're ever going to want a world where we are isolated and alone, and we optimize our technology so that each of us can live in our own little bubble. As much as it seems great to have, like, the eye of everything, and, like, everybody gets to be in their own little island, um, because I feel like a lot of tech sort of is focused on the individual and, like, the power of the individual, I think we never want that, right? (laughs) Like. Yeah. And a lot of studies have shown that, um, you know, when you think about like longevity, right, what should we be doing? What should we be eating? How often should we exercise? What are all the little things that we can control in our lives so that we like live an extra couple of years when we're in our 80s and 90s, presuming that we're lucky enough to get there in the first place? And I think there's been a lot of studies recently that show that like the, the best guarantor of longevity is that you spend time with other human beings. You feel loved, you feel connected, you feel like... Part of it is you have a purpose when you're younger. When you're older, it's just like you're connected. Like someone's there. Or we're, we're mammals, we're animals, we have limbic systems. And we like our hearts to be next to other hearts because they can regulate together. And like, I think that will always be there. And I think that, you know, a lot of this, you sort of read big picture narratives around AI and we, we worry about the machines becoming smarter than us that is focused on some assumption that the, the most human aspect of our humanity is this little part of our brain that's the prefrontal cortex that does like rational calculations. And like, God, that would be a horrible world if, if that's what we get reduced down to. Like, who wants that? So I think it's pretty inevitable that we are going to really stay, anim- stay animals and like love the aspect of us, of, of our animalness. And that we can think about developing technology to support that as opposed to alienate ourselves.
2: That's so interesting. Do you think AI actually saves us from the machines? Because the last 10 years, we've really been programmed to just be addicted to the machine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if we make design choices where we want that to be the case, for sure. So I know in the latest Android release, they've now added a couple of features where you can sort of program, it's sort of like a dimmed color mode so that it's it enables you to sleep a little bit better. Or even like you can like decide that you no longer want notifications after a certain time or, you know, however you'd like to configure it so that you feel a little bit more autonomous as opposed to tethered to this machine that's guiding your every dopamine hit. So um, I feel like those preferences, it might be hard for us to determine exactly what we want from first pass and sort of like wake up on a Monday and be like, this is how I want to live this week. I know, I certainly know that, you know, I try to, I always want to shift some habit and fail miserably by Monday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, Monday morning, I have high hopes, and by, like, 4 o'clock, I'm like, oh, God. Don't we all. Yeah, with the uh, inevitability of the 5 o'clock shadow, it's, like, done. You know?
2: What do you find the most or least surprising about the current state of AI?
1: Ooh, great question. Let me think a little bit. I mean, I think I find the least surprising but the most um, boring is our imagination of AI as robots that are supposed to be more intelligent than we are and sort of have an antagonistic relationship with us. Least surprising because science fiction has had a big impact on our cultural imagination. So like, and the science fiction writers, by the way, were drawing upon the Judeo-Christian tradition. So, and like the, the medieval and ancient epics. So there's like 2,000 years of intellectual history shaping what we consider to be, the future but it's kind of old and stale so it's not surprising at all that that's what we're worried about but it's also so restricting as opposed to our sort of opening up our minds to have more creative sources of inspiration uh where i don't know animals are super intelligent dogs imagine being a dog and being able to smell the world they do like they do right and imagine like if we were to use that as a source of inspiration for thinking about some cool product what would that look like
2: how do you have such optimism uh, for AI, and how do people? How do you give that to more people, I believe?
1: So, or how do you have so much? I mean, I think math is cool. Um, <laughs> and a lot of people aren't interested in, like, you know, understanding the all this is is linear algebra that ends up having these, like, miraculous Turing test-like experiences where the Turing test is, like, you see, a, you know, a computer seems intelligent. A computer is intelligent if we mistake it for an intelligent agent, when on the back end all that it is is math. So, um somehow modifying, we have to modify like our educational system to make math more fun and not just this thing we have to go through to sort of develop intuitions. That said, I I also think that there's a lot of concerns and ethical risks and things we need to be thinking about with AI. They're often different than the ones we worry about. It has to do more with uh, some of the existing inequalities in society that are being exacerbated and reflected as through a convex mirror with these tools. But I'm even optimistic about that because it's not the like the linear regression is not evil, right? A mathematical model, it can't be, it doesn't even make sense when you say something like that. What it is doing is, as this guy Jonathan Zunger wrote on the internet, AI does not permit polite fictions. So we walk around with our like nice little polite lies that we tell one another related to how well we get along with one another in society and like how much we've progressed since the 1960s. And these systems come along and they're like, nope, nope there's still a lot of systemic racism there's still violence there's still bias like that's in the data the data it's showing us loud and clear so we have to be very mindful as practitioners developing these systems of like where things can go wrong and i think that there's a lot more work to do to sort of, you know, get like sort of up the ethical awareness and consciousness of a lot of not just technologists, but basically like dialogue between philosophers, like policymakers, ethicists, technologists, et cetera. Can't just like lay all the burden on, you know, the engineers at Google. That's that's not the solve. Um, What short term feels like this like unbearable burden of trying to develop systems that are fair and like not have all these mistakes take place is actually a, a wonderful long-term opportunity to try to become more aware of like inequalities and do something about it. If we're, but again, it takes that shift in framework. If we like view AI as a tool that we are empowered to design and build and shift, and not this like this like source and force we can't control.
0: We told you, Catherine gets the balance of pragmatism and poetry machine learning machine learning is all about the ways we navigate a new world where identity and technology and commerce and security have to live together in ways we can't even fully imagine yet we have some great guests lined up where we want to hear from you, who would you like to hear on machine yearning? Catherine came to us through a friend and we bet you have good ideas too, let us know DM us, at assist on Twitter, coming up how math gives us an approximation of meaning, and other things that blow our mind. But Catherine explains it so well.
2: What is the difference between AI thinking and natural thinking? Are they, are they fundamentally different?
1: I think there's certain aspects of natural thinking and AI thinking that are the same and others that are really different. So one of the big capabilities and breakthroughs in AI over the past like five years has been in the field of what they call computer vision. So this is basically you show a picture... You, me, you show a computer a picture of a cat or a dog or a glass of wine or, like, a baby, and basically it could come out and it can give you a label and say, this is a cat. Uh, so then you say, all right, so is that, like, the same way that we as humans recognize a cat? Yes and no. So from the yes perspective, um, basically the, these systems are trained where they make a mathematical model. So when I say mathematical model, I literally mean, like, If you remember back to when you learned algebra in high school and you had like y equals f of x, like a function. So um, some of those functions can be pretty simple, like y equals 3x. And unfortunately, that's that's not complex enough to do something like recognize a cat in a picture. But if you take it and you say y equals, like, imagine projecting this out into 50 dimensions, which is a cool imaginative exercise, right? Like we can imagine three because we live in them. Uh, we can maybe add on like time as a dimension or maybe color and get us ourselves up to like six, but imagine now we to go up to like 50 million, you know, and it's like, my mind gets blown. There's no way for us to even have an intuition. Like we can't like imagine that in our mind, but that's how many dimensions these functions are working with when they are presented with some super complex data and then they are asked to do something like, say what's in that data. So then we say, all right, so is that like or dislike human thinking? Like it is because our brains are super complex computational machines that can take in all sorts of information and do stuff with it. What we can do that computers can't though is if we're shown three pictures of cats, we kind of start to see the patterns and and like similarities between them. And if we see a fourth picture, we can get a sense of what that is. If you're a machine today, you need to see like 50,000 in order to start to get a sense of you know, what catness is. So they can't construct like a schematic representation of Katniss um, as easy as we can. So we come we hardwired with um, some pretty cool processing tools.
2: And is so what changed in the world that there's just enough machine readable data to start training now? It, it, like, and all of our language is online and so we're putting all this machine readable text all day into an area where it can be read. Is that what's changed in the world of like, or is it the models have gotten better or the data's gotten better? Like what's changed?
1: It's a combination of the three, but I think it's fundamentally the first two that you mentioned. So computers are a lot faster. Um, and also the shape of the underlying hardware has shifted. So like the if you think about like Silicon Valley and what they call central processing units, basically chips that were like You know, sort of running the technological revolutions of the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, they took electrons and they processed them in a line. And the math that's powering AI does things in sort of crisscrosses. Like it's like, so it's beneficial to have these lattice structures where electrons can cross paths and move in and out of one another. And those chips actually came from video games, so they're graphical processing units, and uh, they were developed for purpose A, and then somebody was like, hey, what if we try this with this AI stuff? And they were like, oh, shit, that just went, like, (laughs) we went from having to take weeks to train an algorithm to being able to do it in, like, hours and not, if not minutes um, Once it's trained, is it trained or does it always keep learning? Depends on, the, depends on the system. So for some of them, like, you know, you sort of do this huge training process um, and then let it loose in the wild and it's, it's good enough for jazz. Uh, most of the time, the phenomenon that you're trying to predict or model changes. So it's actually really great to start off with uh, a model that makes a lot of mistakes, um, but then learn and get like real time you know, feedback from the world in time. Can we
2: focus back to language? Because you said what changed about photos breakthrough in the last five years. But are there breakthroughs in language?
1: So there was this big shift over the past five years in in terms of how statistical systems, machine learning systems are programmed that are enabling them to capture more of the nuance in language. So uh, old school natural language processing, which is the subfield in like the overall umbrella term of AI that focuses on language. Basically, it was built on the, so the, the task at hand is language is a mess. It has so much nuance. There's so many like nitty gritty details that we, that we process when we extract meaning from some utterance and like sort of sequence of sounds. And in the past, uh, what a natural language processing practitioner would do would be to take a messy sentence and sort of break it down into parts so it'd be like this is the subject this is the verb this is like the object right so things that you learn when you learn grammar when you're in grammar school and then they would use those parts and sort of put them into a database and start to find regularities on them so there was a huge step that was the human mind coming in and taking something complex and making it more simple so that it could become tractable using computers
2: do they call that entities
1: yep there's entity resolution and extraction and stuff like that I And um, the shift in the new deep learning paradigm is we say, let's go bottoms up as opposed to top down. So let's stop trying to impose meaning onto things and sort of tease it out using structure and just feed in millions of examples of real live sentences and allow like the complexity to stay and not reduce it down into these simplifying assumptions and just allow the computers to sort of pick up those patterns and be able to execute tasks like translation or you know sentiment analysis, whatever that may be. And therefore we're, we're enabling, like we're keeping some of the complexity in the language in the model so it's able to pick up a lot more interesting and nuanced stuff. The trade-off there is that sometimes it's harder for us to understand exactly what the model's picking up on, why it's found nuance, so we sort of lose control over the system. Um, because we have to. In order, you know, we, we're, not, we're not using our mind to try to sort of bake simplicity into the process. We're, we're sort of allowing there to be more complexity.
2: So how does this work? I take millions of sentences of any language or one language?
1: You normally want to stick with one as opposed to just sort of random. Does a, um,
2: does a certain language work better than another?
1: Depends on how many training examples you have. So what we're doing is you take a sentence... And then basically the first pass is to represent it as a series of numbers in what we call vector, and the numbers are sort of projected into space. So you, you turn it into like a geometrical arrow, if you will, okay? And then what, this is what I found. This is why I got into the field in the first place. It was so fascinating to me that you when you turn language, sort of process it sequentially and turn it into this number... You can then do mathematical operations on it. Like you can add, subtract, multiply all the things you do when you've got like, you know, a line in space. And, and then you, you... So you do all that processing in the world of math and then you output, again, sort of a, a language, like a sentence representation. And it's as if it's been doing sort of language the way we think about it, right? It's it's as if it's been finding grammatical relationships or semantic relationships, but all that it's doing is it's using math as a proxy for meaning and miraculously it works. And it doesn't work perfectly and it makes all sorts of mistakes, but like we can use math as this approximation space for meaning, which is like, I find mind-blowing. I mean, really so exciting.
2: What does that mean?
1: It means that... There's something going on in how our minds, if we were able to like, cut open our brains and look in and sort of observe the processes of how neurotransmitters are flitting around from place to place and all these little connections that are made between synapses to make meaning like we're doing right now, having this conversation we'd see something that was a much more complex, fancy version than these artificial intelligent neural networks are doing, right? So I don't want to give the impression that it's like there's a direct analog between how brains work and how these machines work because it's more like a metaphor than it is like an exact replica. But it does mean that there is some sort of mathematical foundation for the way in which we communicate with one another. You know, if we, again, if we could peer into our brains with some special magnifying glass, we'd be able to see.
2: Wow. And I would wonder, like, what is
1: meaning then? Yeah, for sure. Well, does it matter? (laughs) Does Does it matter as much as we think? I mean, in terms of linguistic meaning. Does it or not? I mean, I take that from a perspective of um, it certainly has transactional value. So, uh, So, you know, we're here today because we were able to exchange an email and agree upon a time and a place, and that time and place had a referent, so indeed, you know, 65 Langton Street is a place that I can look up on a map and I can come there. And when you asked to do a podcast that had meaning for me, like it wasn't, you know, and it was different than coming over for pizza with somebody I've never met before. So, you know, <laughs> met
2: something different. Um, so meaning has so many variables.
1: Has so many variables. And so it has a, it's a token of exchange for us to be able to, like communication is just a form of, you know, uh, being able to do stuff together, uh, as opposed to sort of just existing in our own little world where we're unable to actually find a space for commonality.
2: Is Ms. Sun- oh, go ahead.
1: I was, was going to say, but that's a really different sense of meaning than like the emotional meaning of falling in love, of watching a movie that makes you cry. And then you say like, that's, you know what I mean? So some, something that is meaningful versus mm-hmm. like something that has meaning. Right. And it's, it has sort of pragmatic transactional value.
0: Machine yearning. We told you she had a lot to offer. Catherine has her own podcast called In Context. We hope you'll check it out. Coming up in this final section of today's Machine Yearning, Shane and Katherine dig into feedback loops and how they help brands finally build real genuine relationships with a community of customers. This might be the most vital part of a conversation that gave us a ton to consider and apply. So let's get to it.
2: Take capitalism and business and how it impacts communicating with your customer. Like we're communicating as two people who, you know, have found meaning. How do you find meaning with your customers?
1: It's a great question. I actually do believe that sort of the big shift that's rendered possible with AI is that customers now give feedback and can give feedback and can be listened to even by their actions and transactions in a way that really wasn't as focused on in technology systems that just sort of push stuff out. Uh, what's neat about like new products, like I love Spotify, um, is that, you know, they have this very simple interface where we can say plus, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down and shape the set of choices that will be presented, like or the, the, the experience that we have in the future. That's
2: fascinating. That's a great example of AI being used very well for good. Oh, for sure. My weekly playlist on Spotify is
1: amazing. Somebody asked me recently in terms of how AI is going to impact sort of the human experience. They were like, is it going to take away self-determination? I was like, oh, actually, they also said A, self-determination and B, serendipity. So like, you know, the experience, sort of a nostalgic experience where you walk into a bookshop and you think you're going in to buy Oscar Wilde's Portrait of Dorian Gray and you sort of browse around and find something that you never would have discovered otherwise. And that's great. Like, I'm all for that. But I think Spotify does that because of the Discover Weekly, where, you know, we don't have a lot of time to go on and sort of search for new music unless you're really a diehard and you're like reading Pitchfork every, every Monday or every Tuesday.
2: So if I'm a, if I'm a brand in the world, how, what, how should I think about language or how should I change my language or what, what, what do I need to do?
1: I mean, I think it's about that feedback loop. So you need to open up the ability to uh, listen to customers as individuals. And here it's like, it's funny I say that, but my mind immediately goes like, this doesn't mean that it's become creepy and collect every single solitary piece of data about somebody in every aspect of their life, so that you you know know them better than themselves, and and can like do creepy <laughs> do creepy stuff with data. But rather um, understand that like you might be underserving certain populations if you go in with your expectation that like everybody works this way or sort of these the sort of ossified approximative stereotypes on what people might be interested in. If you can get some vehicle, it has to be easy. Because no one wants to fill out a survey. Nobody wants to like do extra work. They just want to be delighted. And they and also like what I love about design thinking and, and applying this with AI is that when you think about offering a product, don't view it as this is the product, but rather what is this, what does it mean to experience this product? So Warby Parker is actually really great at this, where they don't sell glasses, they sell the end-to-end experience of what it means to like fix your vision. And include in the customer experience everywhere from like being able to try on a couple of pairs to figure out what works best to I think they have some um, I actually don't I'm not a Warby Parker customer myself because my eyes are very close together and standard eyeglasses like look horrible on me.
2: Interesting. So I have to
1: go to kids uh, glasses really? shops, <laughs> which like is like sucks, but it is what it is. But, um, you know, they like they just contextualize in the full experience. So I think that there's. Really, this magical opportunity with AI. We tend to think of it as like it's gonna, you know, there's fear of job automation and like everything becoming like sort of the realm of the robots. But if we reconceptualize the tech as what I consider to be the connective tissue between humans who want to love one another as individuals, or like what it means for a company to really love a customer, and loving them means empathizing with their experience and different people's experiences. I think it's like a wonderful way to view these tools.
2: And brands are driven by attention. Right? For sure. As capitalism is. So it, when they can deploy AI, and if attention is the game, and it's focused on that, is it going to get bad?
1: I mean, for me, this goes to long-term versus short-term. So if the brand is optimized to get short-term you know, revenue wins, and attention and hacking attention is the hook there, then, then they're going to optimize for that. Uh, if, on the other hand, there starts to be sort of a like consumers don't want that anymore, and the brands really need to focus on their long term like loyalty Relationship. and relationships with people, then for me it somehow it has to make sense. And mm-hmm. it's of course I don't want to be overly totally idealistic, right? There needs to be the right balance between P and L holders and businesses that have near quarterly revenue targets and fiduciary duty back to shareholders and like this is how the system is all structured but you're, we're starting to see things fray a little bit at the seams what are and some examples so gosh even in the company that i'm working with right now we there's a notion in uh, sort of thinking about working with data and consumer enterprises of lifetime value so like you want and you want to maximize the lifetime value from a customer so it might be that somebody comes in and they spend like seven hundred dollars on day one and you're like "Ooh, interesting like let's focus on this person but then you notice that they spend once and then they're just gone so like their lifetime value is like is is exhausted from that first transaction, and others where it starts off kind of slow, but it builds over time. And you got that like it's almost like a one night stand versus a long term enduring relationship. You know, um, yeah, for sure. I mean, Amazon Prime yeah. actually is it's a brilliant mechanism to ensure customer loyalty. And what I've heard, and you know, this is a little bit of just uh, it might be apocryphal, but um, all of the features like Amazon Video, you know, that you get as a Prime subscriber those are tricks to get people on prime like it's not like a service in itself it's like a it's an, a, it's an additional benefit because what they really care about is having that subscription because that leads to like the correlation between that being a leading indicator of like stickiness with the customer is so tight that they're the, just like
2: the best business is subscription
1: for sure and once you've already invested that sunk cost like and you get all of the benefits of like it's going to arrive in 2 days you know the 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 amenities that go along with being a prime subscriber like, of course, you know. Now, does that mean that it's really in the customer's best interest? Good question. Um, it certainly is the case that, like, as you think about, like, why Amazon is the business that it is, that they invest in long term. Like, they're thinking about when they take an action today, it's not oriented towards short-term profitability and horizons. And this is a lot of the sort of companies that, like, so, large Silicon Valley companies where if you look at their balance sheet, It's so much startling that the valuations are so high, but they're sort of playing a different game than most other companies are governed by.
2: If I'm a brand, and even where we in our past got taught is to have the answer and like raise our hand and get an A, and like not really be cool with saying I don't know. Mm -hmm. In this space, how is a brand who's probably not cool with a bunch of airs cool with airs?
1: Um, they struggle with it. You know, it's that's why people
2: struggle with how to even understand to implement AI or bots or whatever.
1: For my take, it's like the biggest cultural challenge Mm -hmm. is getting comfortable with um, making mistakes, you know, uh, learning, having the output of a system be a probabilistic guess that may or may not be right and being okay with that. Um,
2: Especially because software actually was built on the Internet in a way where it worked or it didn't.
1: Yeah, for sure. People are used to um, also even in like agile product development, being able to know how long it takes to build X or Y widget. Uh, when you move into sort of AI and you're like, we're going to do some experiments, we start with this hypothesis, we get some data, That's it's like, nope, it didn't work. There's basically, re. it's almost being more like a, an, an investor, you know, where you sort of place your, you spread your bets across multiple companies, knowing that nine out of 10 are going to fail, but like there could be the opportunity for one to be really great. Um it's focusing on long-term opportunity, knowing that. Errors and failure is a
2: big part of the new world.
1: It's part of it, and it's the only way to learn. Uh, also, even as a you know, as humans, um, you learn a lot more from the mistakes you make. And it's helpful that when the end of the story is positive, right? If you're just yeah. sort of like always failing, it's not, not really the best recipe for well being, mental mental health and well being. But um, Go ahead. yeah, but it, it's a, you know, if there's no if you don't make mistakes, you learn the most when you try something and it's not as great. You can sort of refine over time.
2: What are the two or three words that you think as, if I was a company? long-term I should focus on to get me started today to walk into this space?
1: So I think uh, a lot of it is going to depend upon data. So imagining what could be possible and then ensuring that you're designing interfaces to collect Really great and interesting data to help solve that problem. Um, what do
2: you see as the best interface?
1: So I just did a podcast interview on my podcast with uh, my friend Eric Colson, who um, is the chief algorithms officer, which is such an interesting title for Stitch cool. Fix. And uh, so Stitch Fix is this—are you familiar with it? It's like yeah, this. It yeah, it's an out—it's an outsourced personal shopper company where you know it's an e-commerce play, and you can come in as a as a user and you just sort of input information into 60 questions and then that's it they send you clothing and you can get five items per month five items per week however many you'd like and what's really fascinating about what they've done is they've actually like they get a lot more data about people so they've designed this interface where it's not just your transactions like what you bought but they've got like people measurements size taste right so it's a much richer collection that does require that upfront effort from A person to come in and sort of fill out the initial information but that effort is then offset by the fact that going forward they don't have to shop anymore you spend 15 minutes to get rid of the shopping entirely Mm. Um, and in the process they're getting a totally different rich set of information about people and their preferences and like what they're interested in that a typical e-commerce play doesn't have
2: fascinating so because of the relationship channel that's one-to-one It's not a bad idea to make me work up front, if long as you deliver on the promise.
1: It's an interesting trade off because you know, anytime there's friction and there's a little bit of work up front, it's like, you know, it's gonna be you're gonna you're gonna lose some customers because they're just gonna they're gonna get to that interface and be like, screw this, I'm not doing it. But But,
2: then your value is in the relationship because that's the only thing that keeps people coming back.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
2: Interesting. It's even uh, thinking about like a hotel, right? I hate when I have to rebook again and re-sign it. Like everything you have to do again, it's almost you got to get me to never have to do anything.
1: Oh, for sure. Once you've, like... I mean, they know you well enough to know a little bit about your preferences, and you've sort of set this thing, and each time you stay, it should become easier to stay the next time.
2: That's a good motto. Every time the customer interacts with you, it should be easier and more delightful.
1: That's right, yeah. I think that's a good way to think about it. And then that flip side of getting there is knowing that there's going to be some error, right? It's not going to be perfect every time. But in the aggregate, overall... Every time the customer interacts with you, it's easier and more delightful. How
2: do you interact with the customer if it is an error? Do I just tell them, hey, is it more like what we're trying to do as humans, like more direct, honest feedback? We're like, we're really, sorry, we just don't know that answer yet. But we'll let you know when we do.
1: I think that's the way. And then you say, well, how do we get there as a culture, right, where what do we have to do in terms of educating everybody about how this technology works so that we can have more honest conversations via like ai interfaces to be like we made a mistake we're really sorry you know here's why what can we do differently next time
2: we need to reprogram ourselves to be cool with making mistakes
1: and that and that goes not only at the company level but even at a like think about when you know i mean i'm in sales meetings all the time and i've always found that it's a great way to gain the prospect or the customer's trust by saying i don't know the answer to that i'm gonna go home and do my homework And sort of, it almost legitimizes then everything else you've said, because then it's like, everything you've heard and hear to date, like, it's right. I wasn't, I'm not faking, going back to the beginning of our conversation, like, you know, how do you know if this is sarcastic or real? It's like, one way is to express vulnerability and be up front with areas where, you know, you you can't, you don't have the right answer.
2: It's the key to trust.
1: Yeah. And I think trust is a huge, I mean, it's a huge thing right now between uh, consumers and brands.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Thanks
2: for having me.
0: It's fun. All right. Thanks for listening. Get in touch on Twitter at Assist. DMs are open. We're super interested to hear who you think should appear on the podcast. Please subscribe so you never miss an episode and share this with someone who cares about how we make sense of these changing times.
2: Machine
0: yearning. Machine yearning by Assist is made by Paul Chufo and Michael Elsesser for Limina House. Have a great day.